0: um but uh but uh if you have your bibles let's turn to James James chapter 1 we're going to look at the end of James chapter 1 um we're actually going to kind of focus in on a verse that Brooke mentioned uh, in the video um James 1:27 but I want to lead the few, read the few verses that lead up to that verse as well um <clears throat> This is James 1, through 27. The scripture says, Be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror, For he looks at himself, and then he goes away, and at once he forgets what he he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, not being a hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in all his doing. If anyone thinks and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Lord Jesus, we ask that today you would help us to hear from you. It is so tempting to get together on a Sunday morning to study the Bible and forget that we've come here to listen to God. These words were breathed out by your Spirit and written down by holy men for our growth in righteousness. Help us as we, um, as we listen to what it is that you're saying to us today. To have open ears and receptive hearts, Lord. You gave us that illustration and the parables about the types of soil that can represent our hearts' posture be rocky or 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 sort of fertile and ready to receive i pray that our hearts today would be fertile and ready to receive or would would you help us not to do what we're so often tempted to do and and judge the scripture or sort of look at it and scrutinize it and decide are we gonna agree with this or not would help us not to stand over your word today but to s- to sit under it and let it interpret us. God, we ask for your help today. Teach us, instruct us, correct us. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Based on the demographics of our church, I'm going to uh, think it's safe to assume that most of us identify pretty closely with Daniel LaRusso and uh, and his uh, and, and And we consider Mr. Miyagi our sensei yeah um, e- even if you're younger and you didn't see the uh, two thousand uh no what was it uh 1984 sorry 1984 I uh, know I was way too way too far off the 1984 film karate Kid maybe you saw the 2010 remake or maybe you've gotten really hooked on Cobra Kai the uh, netflix uh the Netflix spin off show uh, of that um but you you know karate kid and you're familiar with the story of young daniel and his uh, impatience with mr miyagi and his sort of unconventional training methods Uh, most of us um, have memories of paint the fence sand the floor wax on wax off and we've seen those principles that mr miyagi taught daniel at play in our own lives Um, uh, we will probably take those memories and those phrases all the way to the grave uh, uh, because we, we know now and we recognize that some of the best training in our lives have co- has come about through ways that are a lot like that. Um, uh, at the time, uh, the, the training seemed like it didn't make sense to us. It, it, it didn't seem right. But in time, we saw that, that it was good preparation for life. Well, I, I want to keep those scenes playing through our minds as we talk about what we're going to talk about today, uh, as we consider what the Lord wants to teach us today about being as the passage reads, truly religious, truly religious. Today, we're going to consider three, and I'm going to use this phrase all throughout, three muscle movements, three muscle movements that that we need to do to maintain true religious, to stir, to true religion, to stir our spiritual affections to truth. Now, before we get too deep into this, these three muscle movements, let me, Let me help you look at the context of this passage just a little bit. So if you got your Bible open in James there, uh, you should know that James, this book, it was written by Jesus' little brother, and there's probably a ton to unpack in that, but his biological half-brother wrote this book. So no telling what he knew about Jesus that we don't know, uh, that nobody really knows, but but he, he wrote this book, and the book was written by, by James, and, and he was also a church planter, James was, uh, after his big brother's death. And he, he started what became the first megachurch in history. Um, secretly, every church planter hopes he gets to plant a megachurch, uh, but, but that doesn't happen for most of them. But this was the first megachurch pastor in history. We read about the origins of this church in Acts chapter 2. So I don't need you to turn there, but if you're curious about sort of where this came from, where this church came from, it came from Acts chapter 2. The believers were were celebrating a holiday. They had come to Jerusalem to celebrate a holiday called Pentecost, and for this holiday people were gathered in Jerusalem from all over the world, and you can imagine that that there was a lot of linguistic confusion. There were people that that were from all over the place, lots of cultures represented, and lots of linguistic confusion, and suddenly... The believers who had gathered there and were there and were were seeking to evangelize and share the message of Jesus, they heard what the scripture says sounded like to them a a wind, a rushing wind. And they um, were compelled to evangelize and they did. And miraculously, as they evangelized, we don't know exactly how it went down, but as they evangelized, uh, God allowed everyone, from, no matter where they were from or what language they spoke, to hear the message of the gospel in their own language. Peter, one of the apostles, saw what was going on and he sort of steps up to the mic and he preaches this incredible sermon that's like recorded for us in, in Acts chapter 2. And so he, he preaches, he steps up and he preaches this sermon. And, and let me read to you what happens. This is verse 37 through 41. And remember, this is the origin story of the church at Jerusalem that was pastored by James, Jesus' half-brother that wrote this book. Okay. Here's what he says in verse, uh, here's what Acts says in verse chapter 2, verse 37 through 41. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And, and Peter said, uh, I'm sorry, and Peter said, and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized for every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and, who all, and for all who are far off, everyone for whom the Lord calls, uh, God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added about 3,000 souls that day to the church. And so the, the church was born. Now, one thing you'll notice when you spend time with people who are of religious faith, it doesn't matter if it's, it's Christianity or other religious faiths, there is a, uh, one of the things you'll, you'll notice when you spend time with them, people of other religious faiths, um, if, or, or even people from your own religious faith, is that they, uh, they often are hypocritical. And that's really what's being addressed here. Um, and, and if we're honest and we look inside ourselves, we realize that we too often are pretty hypocritical. And, and hypocrisy is really a difficulty when it comes to, to faith. Hypocrisy is a universal problem among all religious folks. In fact, if you talk to irreligious folks, they will often say, Christians are just a bunch of hypocrites, or religious people are hypocrites. And Jesus addressed this this issue of hypocrisy and religion in Matthew 23 when he was talking to some very, very religious people called Pharisees. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you're hypocrites! For you look like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within there are dead people's bones and all sorts of uncleanliness." So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. So what Jesus says to religious people who are hypocrite is that they're fakes, they're phonies. On the outside they look good, but on the inside they're dead. So James opens his book uh, talking to us uh, about about valid faith about to this uh, presumably this group of new christians he's preaching to as well about bringing validity to our faith and avoiding hypocrisy and 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 he has the the big idea in mind that he states plainly in verse 22 look at verse 22 he says be doers of the word not hearers only again he's addressing hypocrisy the 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 thing about a hypocrite is to say one thing and do another He's saying, no, we need to be more consistent. We need to, we need to say things, but also do things that, that God commands us. So James, uh, in, in this passage, he he, uh, he says, Be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving yourselves, for if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks at a mirror sees his natural face, and then, and then he looks at himself and goes away and forgets what he looks like. So that's how we become. We become very forgetful if we go and listen to God, but then we walk away and act in, in, in ways that are not consistent with what he's told us. I trust that we've all seen the devastating effects of hypocrisy, and, and we, can, uh, we can notice that it, it uh, discredits our faith. It, it undermines the credibility of our faith. and Manning who was a pastor, he died a few years ago, but he reminds us of this truth that really, really cuts deep. He says it like this. He says, says, the greatest single cause of atheism in today's world is Christians. Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips uh, and then walk out the door and deny him with their lifestyle. That's what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable his his claim is that the the greatest cause of atheism in the world people turning their hearts and minds away from god is actually christians who who speak the gospel with their lips who claim jesus but don't act in the way that jesus has commanded this is what an unbelieving world finds unbelievable so james for the For the rest of the passage, he unpacks what it means to be a doer of the word. So you're kind of like, hold on, we took a hard right turn. I thought we were talking about adoption today. What's he doing? Here's what we're doing. What James does in his text is he says, hey, be doers of the word, and then he's going to tell us what it means to be a doer of the word. So James, for the rest of the passage, he unpacks what it means to be a doer of the word, and he does so in an uncomfortably specific manner. Now, if you're a religious person, you've been around church a long time, one of the things that's wonderful about church is often we get big, huge, abstract concepts that it's really hard to act on. God says, love your neighbor, and we're like, yes. Love my neighbor I get to interpret who my neighbor is I get to interpret what love is there's all kinds of space in there for me to do whatever I want to do and feel justified in my religion even if other people see me from the outside as a hypocrite but what James has done here he said be doers of the word but he didn't leave it there he told us three very specific muscle movements things we can do activities actions that we can do that will actually that the, the, is the manifestation is the is the bringing about of what he was asking in the beginning us to be a doer of the word and, and he tells us these three things so he does this in an uncomfortably specific manner and he gives us three muscle movements that combat hypocrisy so if you are a religious person you consider yourself a, an adherent to a religious faith and if you're here I'm going to guess that's probably true of you. James, Jesus' little half-brother, wants to tell you that if you want to consider yourself, uh, you know, truly religious, that you should use these three muscle movements as a diagnostic tool to discern if you're really very serious about your religious faith or not. In another, another way of saying it, James is saying these things are where the rubber hits the road in terms of a Christian acting like a Christian. Religion That is pure and undefiled before god he says visits orphans and widows in their affliction keeps one's unstained self unstained for the world and bridles his tongue i said those out of order but bridle his tongue visit orphans and widows in their affliction and keeps oneself unstained from the world so let's look more closely at each of these three muscle movements that will help us combat Hypocrisy he starts off saying, if anyone thinks he's religious, notice the, the wording there is really, really funny, right? If anybody thinks he's religious, he's acknowledging self-deception among religious people, which is a real issue, right? Which is often why we are seen as hypocrites by a watching world. Because sometimes we think ourselves to be religious because the criteria in which we're judging our religious affections is, is a little off kilter. Notice that it's entirely possible, according to James here, to think that you are religious and be totally wrong about that. I know that in our modern Christian culture, the term religion is sort of not in style. We're, we're about a relationship, not religion, right? But just hang with me. Let's use the word religion here today in the way I believe it's intended from the scripture, just to mean our, our life with God. Okay, So don't get hung up on the, on the word religion Um, today uh, we're talking about our relationship with jesus our life with god when i say religion so i know you're you know everybody everybody here probably you know that's kind of been alive in in the christian world for a little while is going religion no i'm not supposed to be about religion i'm supposed to be about relationship well i think the the author here didn't live in our cultural moment and when he said religious he meant our life with god so let's let's take it to mean that okay don't get hung up on the word james is trying to say here that if you think you are pleasing God, but you don't blank, you're just fooling yourself. And again, he gives some incredibly specific things there. I would be way more comfortable if these things were super general. And and I got to kind of pick and choose or interpret, or maybe there was a much longer list that I could choose from and say, yeah, I'm going to do that one. That one feels more comfortable to me. But he's very specific about... What it is that we can do, what actions we take, he even calls it being a doer that will that will help us combat hypocrisy in our lives. And I, I would ask you, what criteria is it that you use to judge your religiousness or your relationship with God? How good you're doing in your relationship with God? Is it your church attendance? Is it virtuous deeds? Is it your position among other religious people? I'm not talking about saving faith here. I'm talking about the way you know we know Jesus saves us. We didn't do anything to earn or deserve that. But then we live after that, right? And as we live our lives, we we're we're often you know looking at our lives and and, and examining ourselves and saying, how are we doing in our life with God? This is the sort of question I'm asking right now. What criteria do you judge your life with God by? Is it your morality? Or the account of time that you dedicate to spiritual thoughts or activities. The amount of money that you give or time that you give to your church or to charity or to Godward causes. Well, yes, probably it is all of that stuff. That's, that's so, that's, that sort of thing is how we determine how serious we are about our, our faith in God. Because universally, that's what commonly it means to be religious. If you're around irreligious people regularly and you're a person who does some of that stuff I just mentioned, you're probably known around your workplace or your neighborhood as a religious person because that's, how the, that's the criteria of the world around us. To whom do you compare your religiousness? Do you think of other people? Uh, in your mind, I think in my mind, there's sort of like a, a spectrum, a scale maybe, between like on one side of the scale is uh like uh i don't know billy graham perhaps you know a really really you know committed religious person that that i would think of as somebody who has their whole life dedicated to god and maybe on the other side is like richard dawkins the person who has their whole life dedicated to being anti-god you know And, and i and i try to place myself on that spectrum as long as i'm hanging out closer to billy than richard i'm good to go right i mean that's kind of how i tend to think about myself Am I more religious than other people? Than my coworkers, maybe. And sometimes, you know, in a world that we live in, um, it's really easy to feel very, very religious and very spiritual in the world that we live in, because so many people around us are, are not religious or spiritual in in any way, and they don't they don't have any kind of confidence in the God of the Bible. So how am I judging my religiousness? Am I comparing myself to other people and my neighbors? Well, Well, the word thinks here is uh, really, really, you should see it as consider yourself to be. So what he says is if anybody thinks himself to be religious, is anybody considers himself to be religious. So you consider yourself to be religious, but you don't blank. Then he says your religion is worthless. Worthless religion. Uh, uh, Have you ever had something that you thought was really valuable and then later on you found out it was worthless well james is warning us here that it's possible that we could get to the end of our lives believing that our religion is of great value only to find that it was pretty worthless jesus talks about this directly too in the gospels when he says he he says uh, many people on that day will say to me lord did i not prophesy in your name did i and i do all these wonderful things in your name, and I'll say, depart from me, I've I've never known you. You're workers of iniquity. So it's possible for us to be on this track where we're doing lots of religious activity, and we're feeling very good about our religiousness, yet we actually uh, aren't pleasing God in any meaningful way. So he gives us these three muscle movements that will serve to us as Religiometers, if it's a word, um, they'll help us to see, are we actually very religious or not? Because it, the thing is, if we try to do these muscle movements, and we find them to be incredibly difficult, or we find ourselves unwilling to do them, it's an indicator to us that our hearts are not actually in the place that, that God wants them to be, that he's trying to bring us to. So these things, James says, are, are, are ways for us to take hard looks at ourselves. The first muscle movement that he t- says in there is in verse 26. He says, he says if anyone thinks himself to be religious, but he can't bridle his tongue, he deceives his heart, and that person's religion is worthless. Bridling your tongue is the first mu- muscle movement. Bridle your tongue. You know, bridle to, stra- to restrain or to hold back or to tie down. We are supposed to keep our tongues under control. For some of us, that feels like, oh, yeah, I, that sounds right. For others of us, our, our tongue is a wild animal that's connected to our heart and doesn't talk to our mind at all. <laughs> it, it's, a, it's a phrase about self-control here, specifically control of your tongue. Don't we all know that bridling our tongue is one of the most difficult components of self-control? I mean, how many of you would admit with me that there are times where I just cannot not speak? I mean, I'll tell myself, I know I'm going into a situation that's going to be hard not to not speak. And I'll tell myself in the car, I'm like, Clint, don't talk doesn't matter what happens in there just don't say anything just go in there think about something totally different and just be there and I'll go in and I'm hardly in the door and I'm running my mouth I, I can't I, like it is so hard to write all our tongues it's a major component of discipline we speak on an average of 30,000 words a day some of us a lot less some of us a lot more but on average we say about 30,000 wor- words a day that's a small book guys And there's a question um, that we're we're forced to ask ask ourselves. How are, are we using those words? Is anyone better because of my words today? Is anyone encouraged because of what I said today? Is Christ treasured? Because of what came out of my mouth today. 30,000 words a day. A small book a day. And I could go through a whole one of those and treasure Jesus none. Encourage people none. It's possible. It's it's likely. And, And some days, for some of us, not one word is worth repeating. Not one word is redeemable. Every single word that we share, or if not every single word, a vast majority of what comes out of our mouth. You see, our, our words as, um, as are prim- primarily ab- about expressing what's in our hearts and our minds. Jesus acknowledged this reality when he was talking to a group of hypocrites in Matthew chapter 12. He, he said, oh, he says a lot of, interesting things to hypocrites in in the bible uh but he says in this one you're a brood of vipers like you're a pit of snakes and um and how can how can you speak good when you are truly evil in the heart he's saying you don't even have the ability to speak good because in your heart is full of wicked evil so just spews out of your mouth because that's who you are on the inner core for Out of the abundance of the heart, Jesus says, the mouth speaks. He gives us this truth, this reality, that what comes out of our mouth is is what's in our heart. There's a correlation between those two things. God did not give you a tongue so that you could dump your immaturity, the immaturity of your heart like sewage, onto your family, onto your coworkers, onto your neighbors, onto your Facebook friends. He gave you a, a tongue and a thumb, so that you could build others up through instruction and blessing and encouragement and evangelism and kindness. Use as intended. God gave us this tool for this purpose. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, the scripture says, he's a perfect man, also able to bridle his whole body, but if we if we put bits into the mouths of horses, this is later on in James, by the way, bits in the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. They, they are large and driven by strong winds, but they're guided by this really small rudder. Whether the, the will, Whatever the will of the pilot directs, so also the tongue, it's a small member, Yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. The tongue, too, is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the whole course of life, set on the fires of hell. He says in this passage, uh, it's like a bit in a horse's mouth. It's small, but it directs the whole body, your tongue. He says it's like a rudder of a ship. It's small, but it sets the course for your whole life. He says it's like a fire. It's small, but it can do a ton of damage. So muscle movement number one that James gives us is that we are to tame our tongue. Muscle movement number two is that we're to help the helpless. Look at verse 27. Religion that's pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. Whew, that one sounds easy. Visit. I can Visit. Visiting's easy, (laughs) right? Like, we can do this one, except for, except for, when you look closer at the word visit. Don't let the word visit here get you off the hook. The the Greek word that's translated into English as visit is episkeptomai. And it means to look after, to care for, and to provide for. That's different than visit, right? (laughs) So you might be tempted in your English Bible just to read through visit and say, I'm supposed to visit orphans and widows. No problem. No. You're supposed to look after, care for, and provide for those who are helpless. You want to avoid being a hypocrite like so many other religious people? Want to prove the validity of your faith to a watching world? Here's how you do it. Take some of the money and some of the privilege and some of the time that you hold so dear and you have so little of and so valuable to you and give it to somebody who's helpless. This is how how James teaches us to test the validity of, of our faith he uses two specific examples here uh, that are so that you're not left to interpret yourself he mentions orphans and widows again i told you he's incredibly specific here he mentions orphans and widows specifically but recognize that in my view and i think the view of a lot of others orphans and widows represent a whole group of people that are marginalized vulnerable and the best word to describe them probably would be helpless they're not able to help themselves. Worldly posture says, God helps those who help themselves. Jesus says, I went to you when you were helpless. You see the difference between the, a gospel posture and, and a worldly posture? And so if we're to mimic the love of Jesus, if we're to be true in our religious affections, we will mimic Jesus's love by bestowing our love upon those who haven't asked for it, who don't want it, who aren't seeking it, and sometimes may not even know they need it, but are helpless. He uses these two examples of orphans and widows here. There's so many compelling reasons a person should look after or care for and provide for, for vulnerable children. Every year we take a Sunday, and this is the Sunday this year where we talk specifically about this one issue— I think it was two years ago that Marcy was with us when we talked about this issue uh, uh, then. And the the reason that James is highlighting uh, uh, today, the the reason, I told you there are lots of reasons in the scripture, but the reason that James is highlighting today that we should visit orphans and widows in their distress is because it's going to help us not be hypocrites. It's very practical. We've talked a lot in the years past Uh, About the reasons that we should do this. Jesus adopted us into his family. Compelling reason. Absolutely. Lots of reasons why we should do this. But it is also a compelling reason that we need to fight our own hypocrisy. And the way that James gives us to fight our own hypocrisy is to tame our tongue. and To to give and sacrifice for the helpless in the same way that Jesus did for us. So every year when we take time to do this, there are lots of reasons, but don't forget this reason. This is maybe a a lesser seen reason. We need to be fighting our own hypocrisy because hypocrisy is disgusting. It's disgusting. When we see it in others, we're disgusted by it. When others see it in us, they're disgusted by it. Jennifer and I have been adoptive and foster parents and we've spent a lot of time and money looking after uh, widows in our life. Uh, and other vulnerable people. And I can tell you that without exception, every time, even though I'm a a quote-unquote professional doing this, every single time I give of something that seems to be mine for the care of a helpless individual, every single time I do that, it stings a little bit. It's hard. It's hard to be a foster parent. It's hard to be an adoptive parent. It's expensive. It's costly. It's time-consuming. And that's the reason lots of us don't do it. But that is the reason, spiritually speaking, that we should do it. I can tell you without exception, every time I spend a dollar or a moment on a child that's not mine, I, I can tell you this. like Caring for children who aren't yours is different than caring for children who are yours. It's different. It's different. It's easy to see the a difficult um, behavioral issue in a child and say "Ah, that has totally to do with the way they were raised or or something like that, disregarding the reality that I am the misbehaving child that Jesus has been so patient with. Every time I spend time or, or energy or attention on the helpless and vulnerable people, I'm forced to consider the ways I could use that time or energy on my own interests. Philippians chapter 2, uh, uh, Jesus models this for us. Let each of you look not only on your own interests, he tells. We're told about Jesus. This is a description of Jesus in Philippians by Paul. He says, let each of you not look only on your own interests. So Paul's talking to the Philippian church but also on the interests of others. Have this mind in you, which was also in Jesus Christ, who, though he was in the form of God, thought it not equality with God not a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, uh, taking on the form of a servant, being made in the likeness of men, and being found in fashion as a man. He humbled himself, and he became obedient unto death, even the death on a cross. So what we have modeled before us in Jesus' life is a life that considered others more significant than themselves. And this is a way that we, that we test the trueness of our religious faith. True religion is to mimic the way of Jesus by considering others more significant than ourselves. That, that doesn't mean that we never do anything for ourselves. I'm not advocating that. I'm not acting that we never care for ourselves or our families or our bodies. We're instructed to do those things, too, in the Bible. But for most of us, we do only those things. However, we're prone to self-love. And the inconsistency of being a lover of self and one who has been sacrificially loved by God is what nullifies our religious faith and is what an unbelieving world finds unbelievable. So the second muscle movement is to help the helpless. And the third one, the last muscle movement that he mentions here, is to keep oneself unstained from the world. To keep oneself unstained from the world. Sometimes my children... (laughs) <laughs> we go somewhere, or they go somewhere, and they're around children that I do not want my children to act like. You guys ever had that experience? <laughs> you Send your kids somewhere, or you go to a place. Uh, sometimes it's even with family, you know. Uh, we go to a place, and my children are with other children who have crazy mindsets, bad behaviors, terrible mouths, disrespecting postures, and the whole time I'm thinking, I'm going to have to deprogram this because my kid's learning bad behavior right now that I need to not take root in their lives and in their hearts. So when we get in the car, (laughs) immediately, I'm like, hey, you saw so-and-so do this. Was that okay? No, Dad, that wasn't okay. Okay. You know, and we we have that conversation because I so if you were to do that, how would dad respond? Well, you'd probably punish me. Yeah. So those are conversations I want to have because I want to keep some separation there. We're called uh, to obey in two separate ways in regard to keeping ourselves unstained from the world. And sometimes these things are confused and they feel like a contradiction. But I think the illustration with my kids hanging around other kids is an important one. OK. So we're called to obey God in two separate ways, separation and participation. And they seem like oxymorons, right? We're we're called to to be distinct or separate from the word. In fact, the word holy, you know, the word holy that we use to describe uh, uh, people that are committed to God, holy means distinct or set apart. In fact, the, the qualification for an elder, one of the qualifications for an elder is his distinction you know, to live. So it was saying like an elder is a person who actually lives out the Christian faith. He lives distinctly. There's a separation between he and the way the majority lives. So holiness is important separation, but not only that, also participation. We are to be in the world and not of the world. You've heard that phrase before, but John 17 would would need that Phrase into the dough of our life. We are not to be separatists and set away from the world, but we're to live inside this world as salt and light. So, to keep oneself unstained from the world, that means we have to be constantly vigilant about the ways that we're interacting with those with worldly impulses and postures and mindsets and actions and activities. It is possible for us to live among them and still honor God, but it is challenging. We are to be in the world and not of the world. We are to participate but separate. 2 Corinthians uh, 6 talks about this tension. We're, to be conform- uh, we're not to be conformed to this world, yet to become all things to all people so that, all might, uh, that some might be saved. We're, we're to be indigenous in this world. We're to be from here and live as people here but knowing that we are actually, at heart, pilgrims from another place. So the, these muscle movements that are given to us uh, uh, today, I, th- I would love to bake into our minds as ways that we could test the trueness of our faith, that we could see if our religion is true or false, bridling our tongue, helping the helpless, and keeping ourselves distinct and unstained from the world. James gives us these three muscle movements uh, for, and Christians who are, are serious about eradicating hypocrisy from their life uh, can can help uh, by adopting and maintaining honesty and integrity in their religion by practicing these.